Hello and welcome to the Battle Cry podcast with Mark Mecklen. Catch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8pm Eastern. Go to conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. And now, here's the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. Good Sunday evening, everyone. Mark Meckler here. I'm your host for the Battle Cry. And as always, I'm really excited to be with you. But I mean, I'm really excited to be with you now because it has been an incredible couple of weeks in American history. And it's pretty rare that I get to say that. It's not just that it's been an incredible week or an incredible couple of weeks, period, but these are historic weeks. And there are weeks that point to something we're going to talk about, the big picture subject we're going to talk about today, the battle cry called action, be a federalist, because the country is actually moving back towards federalism. Federalism is all about taking the power away from the federal government, away from the central government and giving it back to the states. And man, it has been just an incredible couple of weeks at the Supreme Court doing that. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, first, I want to start by talking about our gear, our swag. We get us all the time for new swag, new gear. And I'm wearing the new hat right now. You see, I don't, hopefully you guys can see that. It says Second Amendment established in 1791. Uh, on this side of the hat, it has a little Convention of States tag. It's a mesh back. I love this thing. Super comfortable. And by the way, we got them in multiple colors. We got the Second Amendment one comes in this color. Love this one too. And then we've got two new, just straight up COS hats. And these are cool. They're what's called a puff embroidery. So you can feel it. There's some texture and side view to that, right? Can you guys see that? There we go. And I've got that in blue and the hip new brown. So all this stuff, I love all these hats. They're super cool, super comfortable, super high quality. Thanks to the folks in the store. You can get them at conventionofstates.com forward slash store. I've been wearing them around. I'm already getting asked about them and people are buying them. So you can be some of the first people. They literally, I think they went up on the store yesterday or the day before. So conventionofstates.com forward slash store. Get your swag today. Support Convention of States. Let people know you're a supporter. Okay, so what in God's name is going on in the country? Because things seem to be going crazy, of course. As you know, there's a lot of weird stuff happening, a lot of negative dark stuff happening, but we've seen some incredible stuff at the Supreme Court in the last couple of weeks, obviously starting with the Dobbs decision, which overturns Roe versus Wade. We now live in, I hear people say it's a post-Roe world. It's not a post-Roe world. We lived in the post-Roe world after Roe was decided and we shouldn't buy into that narrative. We shouldn't say we're in a post-Roe world. It's not about Roe versus Wade anymore. We now live in a post Dobbs world. Dobbs has been decided that returns the power to the states in true federalist fashion. Stop saying Roe. They've branded Roe as something positive. And so if we talk Roe, we're talking their language. We make this mistake all the time. We should talk Dobbs and being in a Dobbs world now and being uh, not post Roe, but post Dobbs. So that's a federalist decision. You get a federalist decision in West Virginia versus EPA. That case said that the EPA overstepped its administrative powers when it created the Clean Power Plan, the CPP, not to be confused with the CCP, the Communist Chinese Communist Party, though they're probably interrelated somehow. But we had the CPP uh, put out by the Obama administration, and it was a way to essentially kill the coal industry specifically, also impact oil and gas negatively, and sort of turn everything over to alternative power. And the court said, and it's absolutely correct, that this was not considered by Congress. When Congress delegated the power to the legislative or to the administrative agencies, it never considered something like this. 
And that's called the major questions doctrine. This was a major question not considered by Congress when they delegated power. And so the administrative agency does not have the power to do this. This is important. It's important in that it kind of shuts down Joe Biden's gr new green deal, <clears throat> but it also will reach to other administrative agencies and limit what they can do in such a sweeping way. I think it's defensive. I don't think it's as far to the offense as I would have liked. I would have liked to have seen a really big cutback on administrative agency power. That didn't come in this case, uh, but I still think it's a good case. Uh, we also had the case uh, about the Remain in Mexico policy, uh, and they're going to allow the Remain in Mexico policy, but it's actually going back to the lower court to talk about uh, if they followed the Administrative Procedures Act, which I don't think they actually did. So that thing's going to be litigated again. Anyway, all of that in quick summary to say, oh, one more, the, the Coach Kennedy case saying that he can pray on the field after games, saying that it was an infringement of his religious freedom, free expression, uh, and free exercise clauses to try to stop him from privately praying in the center of the field. So that's a great victory for religious freedom. And all of this to say we're going back to constitutionalism. And a big part of going back to constitutionalism is going back to originalism or textualism. That's how we get back to federalism, right? And why do we need to? Why is this so important? Well, let's talk about where the country is at right now. And this is a speech that I've been giving around the country, sort of on an ad hoc basis, just wherever I feel like giving it, not something written down, just kind of riffing out of my head. And I keep getting asked if I've said it on tape anywhere, if I recorded it anywhere, and I haven't. So I'm going to do it for y'all. And this is talking about what I call the great decoupling. What's going on in America right now is that the country is coming apart. Do you disagree with that? Does anybody disagree with that? Left or right, center, wherever you are, you look around you and you think, man, people are going crazy. They're hating on each other. It's left versus right. It's gay versus straight. It's black versus white. It's you name it, religious versus non-religious. There's all these internecine fights going on all across the country. And instead of seeming like we're more like each other, we're seeming like we're more different than ever before. There's a lot of people who are very concerned about this. And everybody would agree it's happening. Most people are pretty concerned about it. Here's what I think about it. I think it's awesome. <laughs> I know that seems weird, but I do think it's awesome. And here's why I think it's awesome. See, we have a misimpression of our history. And if you go back prior to the American Revolution, prior to the Declaration of Independence, 1776, July 4th, which we're going to be celebrating this weekend, go prior to that, go to the colonial era and look at the colonial era because we have this impression that in the colonial era, it was one big happy family, 13 colonies, all getting along well, all trading. That's not what it was like. They generally hated each other. Most people never traveled from one colony to another. They were like foreign countries more than they were like part of the same thing. And they, there was a lot of sectarian distrust between different sects of Christianity. The people calling each other blasphemers, people didn't understand those crazy Quakers in Pennsylvania or the uh, original, uh, e not evangelical Baptists. And so there's all these diff different sects, right? Church of England, the Anglicans, they didn't like each other. And in fact, at the time of convention by 1787, you've got um, Pennsylvania and New York getting ready to come to blows in a trade war. They did not like each other. And what happened was there was an existential threat. King, King George and Parliament come along and say, we're going to tell you what to do, and you have no choice. The Declaratory Act. And the colony said, this is an existential threat to our freedom. We've got British soldiers being quartered on American soil. 
we're going to have to do something about this. Let's join arms and fight King George. Not because we like each other, not because we trust each other, but because there's an existential threat that's greater than all that. And so we're going to have to fight against that together. And so we do. We, we work to fight against that together. You know our nation's history. That's what we're going to be celebrating this weekend, specifically, or on Monday, uh, July 4th. But it doesn't mean we like each other or trust each other. You know, you go to the end of the war. Now, you would think that the colonies that fought together on the battlefields of the American Revolution were literally regiments from one colony, stood next to, next to regiments from another colony, and fought against the British. You would think that afterwards it would be sort of a band of brothers thing, right? They would all come together. They would like each other, they would trust each other, and they form a new national government. Instead, what happens is they like each other and trust each other so little that they form the Articles of Confederation. Now, most of you know the story of the Articles of Confederation. It forms a weak central government, essentially more like a league of states, and they do it because they don't like each other, because they don't want to give any other state any power whatsoever over their state. No power to tax, no power to raise an army, no power to do anything. And so it doesn't work. We dislike each other and we have so many differences that the government ultimately falls apart. And we get to the convention of 1787, which we all know a lot about because we study that in convention of states and we come together. And in that convention, it's incredible because all these colonies that have become states under the article of confederation that have hated each other and they all come to convention. They miraculously like each other. They all get along at convention. Everybody. What's that? Oh, that's not how it goes? No, you're right. That's not how it goes at all. They get in convention. There's distrust. There's disdain for the other states and small states against large states, slave states against free states. There's economic interests. There's property interests. All this stuff creates incredible conflict at the convention. And throughout the convention, people make accusations towards each other. People insult each other. They don't like and they don't trust each other. And what's incredible is out of that dislike and this distrust, out of all these different points of view, comes the greatest system of governance ever to preserve the freedom of man, and that is a federalist system of governance, a constitutional republic. I just, it's important we remember our history really and where it came from, what was our posture as individual states, and it was one of distrust and dislike, right? So that's what keeps us together, because we have a federal government that says, there are a limited number of enumerated powers for the federal government. Everything else is retained by the people and the state. So it was intended to create this small nucleus of power in the federal government, but where the federal government reigns supreme in those small areas, and then the states and the people maintain most of the power. So that holds for a while, right? And the government sort of operates that way for a while. And we don't pretend that we're unified because we know we're not. We don't trust each other as states, but we have this federal government for a purpose, which is defending against an existential threat. England's still a threat. Spain is still a threat. France, sort of our ally, but they'd be just as happy to take us over. So there's existential threats. We have to hang together to face those existential threats. Over time, something changes, right? And over time, what happens is we all end up loving each other. Everybody in the different states realizes we're all just one big happy family. It's e pluribus unum from many one, and, and we just join hands and sing Kumbaya. No, 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 that's not what happens. Ultimately, if you look at the history of the United States, you can jump forward, and I'm going to jump past a bunch of history. By the 1860s, 
we're so divided as a nation that we go to war against each other, right? So let's not get caught up in some fantastical romantic history where we all love each other and we're all unified. No, we are banded together for a purpose to protect ourselves from existential threats, but we don't like each other. We don't trust each other. We have different cultures, different ways of looking at the world. Half the country, the South of the country believes in slavery, right? The North mostly believes in abolition. So you've got this incredible divide that leads to between six and 700,000 dead and injured in the civil war. And we ultimately force a union on half of the country. Thank God we end slavery. It turns out well in essence. And the good news is after the civil war, everybody just loves each other, right? We go to this back to this fantasy vision where everybody just goes, no, of course that's not the case. Absolutely not. The South deeply resents the North. Carpetbaggers come down as the South calls them and take over the North. Governors are appointed by the North into the South, by the Union into the Confederacy. And we still don't like or trust each other. The South enacts a whole bunch of laws which intend to preserve some of the institutional or a lot of the institutional uh, harbingers of slavery. It's really bad. There's no unity, but we have forced a government unity on the country, right? That's what we've done. So you come out of the Civil War, and I'm going to jump way forward in history. There's a lot more detail you could throw in here. But something really serious begins to change in the country when we go to war in World War II. There is another, and you're going to notice a through line here, existential threat. We have Nazi Germany, ultimately Japan, right? So we have superpowers, fascist, totalitarian superpowers aligned against freedom in the world, and the United States decides to go to war against this. When we do this as a country, and again, I'm simplifying and shortening history, so forgive me, but when we go to war, something happens, which is everybody in the country sacrifices. Literally, it's everybody. Everybody knows somebody who's gone off to war. Everybody's lost young men in war. This is going on. People are buying saving bonds to support the war effort. People are recycling scrap metal and rubber to support the war effort. And it does create a pretty serious sense of unity in the United States of America. I'm not trying to present an overly pretty or Pollyannish picture. It wasn't easy. Everybody didn't go along. Racism was a terrible problem. But putting all that aside, we were unified in the war effort uh, overseas. And when everybody comes home from war, we're victorious. We've conquered our foes. We've conquered fascism and totalitarianism for a time. There is a great sense of unity in the United States of America. That's different than before. I would argue this is the first time as a country we really truly feel unified. We've been in a totally unified fight together where pretty much everybody was in on it. And out of that, you get the single most prosperous and unified period of history in America in the 1950s. This is where we get the idea of the house in the suburbs, the picket fence, the kids, the puppy, all of that stuff, The what we call the American dream comes out of the post-World War II period. And I think that creates for us what I would refer to as a veneer of unity starts to grow in the United States of America. Picture the Liberty Bell and you add a layer to it saying that we're all unified. And that crack underneath, that's the part where we don't really like each other and we've kind of fought always and there's a lot of disdain and distaste for each other. But we've got a veneer of unity that comes out of World War II. And out of World War II, in the 1950s, you start to get national television networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, which means if I'm in Mississippi or I'm in New York, I can be watching the same television programs. 
right? We can watch the honeymooners, leave it to beaver. Father knows best as television starts to progress means culture is starting to come, become a bit homogenous. And before this, whatever culture you had in Mississippi was very different than New York. They re retain their regional differences, of course, but we start to share culture. You get into the 1960s, you get franchising comes in big and you start to get restaurant chains spread across the US. You start to get hotel chains spread across the US. You start to get gas station brands spread across the US. It turns out by the 1960s, generally speaking, I can drive from Mississippi to New York. I can smoke the same cigarettes. We're all smoking Lucky Strike, which we're seeing on national advertising. And use the same soap. We're all using Borax soap or something like that, a national brand. I could stay in national brand hotels. I can eat the same food from Mississippi to New York all the way. And it makes us start to feel like maybe we really are unified as a country. Right? Maybe we are the same whether we live in Mississippi or New York. Of course, you know, and I know, and a lot of you are alive during that period of time. We're not really, actually. People in Mississippi tend to be very different from people in Manhattan. And the same is true from Texas to California or wherever else you want to go in regional differences and state differences in the country. But because we're all watching this stuff and participating in this stuff together, we start to feel the same. Go into the 60s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, you really get the boom in national sports leagues, major league baseball, major league football. National Basketball Association. If you're a hockey fan like me, you got the NHL. So all this stuff starts to happen. We start to watch football, college football games on TV. We're all participating in national sports leagues. We're watching the same games at the same time, seeing the same results, rooting for sometimes the same, sometimes different teams, but we're all engaged in this pursuit together, creating more of a feeling of national unity. So there really is, by the late 1950s, very much national unity into the 60s uh, and then on into the 70s. And by the 1970s, we have the era of big government, pretty much unchallenged. There's no political party that's saying big government is bad in the 1970s. Uh, look, you get Richard Nixon, who gives us the EPA, right, and the Department of Education. You wouldn't think of a Republican president doing that today, but that's what's being done in the 1970s. Really, nobody challenging the idea that it's the era of big government. So we've got this veneer of unity of what uh, you think of as the Liberty Bell, but there is that crack underneath. And in the 1960s, that crack starts to spread. You get the Vietnam War, you get the war protests, you get the free love movement, drugs, psychedelic music, all this stuff, protests in the streets, people throwing Molotov cocktails, protests on college campuses. And this is a very serious schism that stretches into our modern era. At that point in history, some Americans, church-going, I'd argue church-going, faithful, Christian, American conservatives start thinking, I don't understand all that stuff. What the heck is that stuff? What is all the people naked in the streets, body paint, psychedelic drugs? It's not what it's like in my town, small town America against the big cities. Really the left starting to align against the right, free love, free drugs, all that stuff against traditional American values. So this break is taking place underneath the veneer of unity. And that break has continued throughout the years and throughout the decades. As somebody who travels a lot, and for any of you who've traveled a lot inside the country, what I'm about to say will sound very familiar to you. If you're in Mississippi, and especially if you're in a smaller town in Mississippi, and you ask people what they think of people in New York, what do they say? I don't mean to be insulting anyway. I'm just going to speak it like it is. You guys know I'm kind of blunt. People in Mississippi would say, oh, those New Yorkers, they're rude, they're brash, they're mean, you know, they're arrogant. 
all kinds of stuff like that. It wouldn't be very positive. I'm generalizing, of course. And then if you ask people in Manhattan the same thing about people who live in Arkansas or Alabama, what would they say? Oh, those people are dumb. Those are the rubes. So those, those are people who cling to guns and religion, right? People who salute the flag. And they don't like them very much. There's a lot of disdain. And so the more things change, the more things stay the same. By the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying you should have disdain for people in other places. I'm just saying if you understand human nature, that's the way it has always been. And that's the way it will always be. Since the Tower of Babel, since we were divided by language, we don't get along all that well. So there's nothing that unique about what's going on in this period in American history, except for we have some fantasy that we're all supposed to be the same, that it's all one culture, that we're all have this veneer of unity. But the reality is this fracture that runs through our society has always been there. Is it worse today than it's ever been? No. I don't think we're ready to have a bloody civil war. Is it really bad today compared to what it's been in sometimes? Absolutely. I think we do have a cold civil war going on right now, right? I don't think it's a bloody civil war. I think it's cold civil war, society fracturing, the great decoupling taking place. I don't want to do business with people on the left. They don't want to do business with me. They want to censor me. And you know, if you think about today where we're at, people on the right ask this question. They look at people on the left and say, I don't understand. You want to kill babies at nine months in the womb. That's murder. I don't get that. That's evil. That's what we think. And I think it's genuine. I think it's it's uh, it's well held. People believe it in their hearts. And then on the left, you have people who say, you guys are homophobes, bigots, Islamophobes, misogynists, and Nazis. And I think they believe those things. They look at me, they look at a lot of you, and they think that way. So we really don't like each other. But what's interesting to me is that's no different than it's always been. That's the same. And so when we think we live in some entirely unique time, the reality is there's nothing new under the sun. And in the United States of America, though we've had a veneer of unity at times that makes it seem like we're all the same and that we should be governed from one place in the middle in Washington, D.C. I don't mean the geographic middle, but I mean in the middle of the population, in essence, where we can all get our edicts from the same place. That makes sense, maybe, for a completely homogenous population. Maybe. It doesn't make sense for us. And it's never made sense for us, and it could never work, and it would never work. And the founders understood this from the very beginning, from 1787, when they drafted our beloved Constitution, which gave us federalism. And so now we're at this point in American history where the country is decoupling, where we're doing business separately, where we're consuming different media, where restaurants insult us, so we want to go to different restaurants, you know, do you want a restaurant that flies a gay pride flag or doesn't fly a gay pride flag, right? So we're splitting off this way in this country. I think it's awesome. And I think whether I think it's awesome or not, it's inevitable. It's going to continue. It's going to get worse. Social media drives this because we know so much and feel so passionately about the issues. And we know so much about the other side and what they believe about the issues, or at least what we think they believe. And so it's going to happen. So now that we know, and it's going to happen, maybe you don't agree with me. I haven't met many people who don't agree that this is happening and it's going to get worse. So now what happens? And from my perspective, there are only two paths. One path is the path of revolution or civil war, violence, civil unrest. And I do hear people who come to me and say, oh, we need a good revolution. We need a good civil war or whatever. 
We need to split the country apart. I look at that and I say, do you know what it looks like when a country has a civil war? Do you know what it looks like to have actual fighting on the streets in your country? And for 99% of people, the answer is no. For those of you who are military veterans, you've been in battle, you've been in countries that are torn apart by civil unrest, you might know, you know how ugly it is. I've looked into it. Revolutions and civil wars don't go well. We have a unique history in the United States in that our civil war and our revolution actually turned out well. But even during those civil wars and those revolutions, I think we underestimate the amount of suffering. The suffering was intense. It was immense. It was grotesque. It was in towns and cities all across the country. And the question is, do you really want that for your family and your kids and your friends and your community? Because this is not going to be some sanitized movie version of civil unrest and war. It's coming to your town. There'll be starvation. There'll be property destruction. There'll be murders. There'll be hangings, right? That's not a good thing. And you and I, we have an obligation to try and avoid that. Our founders gave us the ability to avoid that, right? They gave us the government structures that should allow us to potentially avoid that. So we should work for those things. The second way the country comes apart is secession. And I hear people, I'm from Texas, people talk about secession in Texas and California. They were talking about secession during the Trump administration. How's that work? Look, in Texas, it's a pretty red state. Dallas is blue, Austin's blue, San Antonio's blue, El Paso is blue. How do you divide that? You kick people out of the cities. Yeah, like there's no simple way to geographically divide the state. Well, the same is true, by the way, for New York. If you're in New York, New York City, Manhattan, the Bronx, maybe Brooklyn, maybe those are blue places nowadays. But as soon as you get outside of the suburbs and you get into the country, New York is a very red state. Have you seen the map of the United States of what's red and what's blue? 90 95% of the map is red. Geographically, population centers tend to be blue. How do you divide that? I don't think there's an easy way. I don't think there's a nonviolent way without driving people out. I don't think it's plausible. And so I don't believe it's a good route. Okay, so if we agree that the country is fractured, if we agree that crack in the Liberty Bell is getting severe enough that something's gonna have to be done about it, if it's not revolution, if it's not civil war, if it's not secession, what is it? And the answer, if we want to stay together as a country, is Convention of States. That's really the answer. Because Convention of States fundamentally answers the question to who decides by saying, we the people in the states are the ones who should decide. In other words, take the power away from the centralized federal government that's causing all this discord and all this cracking of the Liberty Bell and give it back to the states and let the states do what they want within basic constitutional structures. Let's go back to the federalism given to us by the founders. And the founders told us, if we ever get to this point where the federal government is not listening to the people, and that's certainly where we're at, then you can call a convention of states, you can propose amendments, and you can bring power back to the people. So I think the solution, if you're like me, and you believe the country needs to stay together, is to call a convention of states. Why does the country need to even stay together? Maybe we should just try to split it into two or three or four nations. Well, the answer is, because there are, and watch the through line here, existential threats. In the time of King George, existential threat was England and King George. In the time of the Civil War, there were existential threats to the United States. Uh, before the Civil War, there were existential threats that kept us together. Today, there is an existential threat to the United States in the form of China. I would argue the worst existential threat we've ever faced as a nation. Russia is a potential existential threat with their nuclear arsenal. 
the drug cartels on our southern border, the, the drug smugglers, the human smugglers, they have their own armies now. They're an existential threat. And the way we defend against those threats is we stick together and we do a limited amount of things together. We act like federalists. And that's how we preserve our nation. That's actually how we go back to living each other with each other. Because if I in Texas am willing to let people in California do what they want, people in Illinois, people in New York do what they want, then we can live together. If on the other hand, I say in New York and California and in Illinois and New Jersey and other left-leaning states, you have to treat your kids, teach your kids the way I want you to, or I in Texas have to raise my kids the way you want me to, then we really can't live together. So federalism is the only way, and the way back to federalism, the way to handle the great decoupling in a way that keeps our nation together is to call a convention of states and propose amendments to rein in federal tyranny, take the power away from the federal government and give it back to the states. And that's what we're all about. And that's what's going on in the United States today. That's the great decoupling that we're all experiencing. Mark Meckler is fighting every day to call the first ever Article 5 Convention of States to drain the swamp once and for all. Join Mark and millions of other Americans by signing the official petition at conventionofstates.com slash pod. And now back to the show. All right, a couple more things that we want to cover. I know that was a long one, but I think it was important. Uh, let's talk about the state of Convention of States. Right now, we've got movement in North Carolina. Uh, and in the North Carolina Senate, it's... Oh, I'm going to be nice. It's frustrating. And here's what we've got going on. To be frank and just blunt, this is exactly the situation. We've done a whip count, which means we know our vote count in the Senate. We believe we have all the votes we need to pass it in the North Carolina Senate. Bill Berger is the Senate president. He has the power to move this thing to the floor. He tells us, your whip count is wrong. There are a few people who say to you that they want to vote for it and that they support it, but they say to me, they don't, me, meaning Phil Berger, that they don't want it to come to the floor and they don't want to vote on it. So what does that say to you? I mean, to me, it smells real bad. It smells like what we think politics smells like. It's a load of you know what, right? In other words, We've got the Senate president coming to us saying, look, basically, he's not saying these words. I want to be clear. He's protecting his caucus. But he says, basically, there are people who tell you they're for you and they're lying to you and they're asking me not to run it. And he won't tell us who they are. So we don't know who they are. We think we know who they are and we're putting pressure on them. But that's where we're at. We are stuck in the North Carolina Senate right now. If you're in North Carolina, call the Senate president, Phil Berger. <laughs> call Senator Rabin. He runs the committee that has to come through and tell him you want to vote on this thing. Right now, I'll be honest with you, not looking great because of recalcitrant Republicans. And we need to pound the you know what out of these guys politely, always politely, but they need to hear a lot from us. And they're hearing from our grassroots. You guys who are there in North Carolina, you're doing a fantastic job. Keep up the great work. We got to push every single day until they either do it or sessions out. And if sessions out, we're not going away. We'll be back to fight again next session. So in Pennsylvania, we I would say we have something similar going on. Uh, we have a whip count. I think we're two or three votes shy in the Pennsylvania Senate. Our senior advisor, Senator Rick Santorum, has been spending a bunch of time there in his former home state of Pennsylvania, working in the legislature, talking to people, overcoming the crazy runaway myths and all the other things. There's a gun group there by the name of FOAC, Firearms Owners Against Crime, that opposes us. Honestly, I think there's a lot of good people in FOAC. The guy that runs FOAC is a lunatic. And I've testified against him. You can see it online. 
He doesn't know even what's in the Constitution. Then when we told him it takes two thirds of states to call, he said that wasn't in the Constitution. I mean, honestly, just not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm going to be blunt and just a fear monger. The other thing that's really interesting to me about this guy is that he's a Marine. You know, once a Marine, always a Marine. We love us some Marines. My son is a Marine, uh, now just graduating from law school. But this guy, he talks about how afraid he is of what's going to happen, how scared he is of what could happen in a convention. You know, fearful, scared, weak, I would argue. I don't know. I don't know a lot of Marines like that. But that's what we were getting out of this Marine who leads FOAC. And so it's a small group compared to our group in Pennsylvania. We're asking the senators to stand and have the courage. They're working on their budget right now, but we should be able to get it done in the Senate this year. If you live in Pennsylvania, call your senator right now and tell them that you want this done. You want them to pass the Convention of States resolution in the Senate. So that's what's going on in those two places. Uh, we've got a couple of questions I want to answer uh, that came in to us at uh, conventionofstates.com forward slash battle. No, that's uh, if you want a video, conventionofstates.com forward slash battle cry. You can upload a video. Producer Gio put on the screen if you want to email. You can email to, I think it's battlecry at conventionofstates.com. Is that right, Producer G? Producer Gio put it up on the screen. So here's a few questions. Number one, where are we on Convention of States? Any more states joining us? We are at 19 states, four states in the last five months. So really good. We're well over the halfway mark. Uh, so that's where we're at, Tom Walters. Larry Foster wants to know what's wrong with the Constitution as written. The answer is nothing. Nothing's wrong with the Constitution as written. Unfortunately, that's not our Constitution anymore. The Constitution as written has been essentially abrogated, bastardized, abused, whatever you want to call it, by the Supreme Court, giving us bogus interpretations. And we now live under that Constitution where I have one sitting here somewhere. I'll grab it for you. Here we go. So this is the pocket constitution, right? That you know and love. This one's from Hillsdale College. That's the whole constitution, all of it right there. Pretty simple. You can read it and understand it. This is a book called, hopefully you can read that, The Constitution of the United States of America, right? That's what it says on it. This is the centennial edition produced in 2012. There's a whole bunch of supplements for it that would make it fatter than this, believe it or not. It's over 3,000 pages with the supplements. Contains every case ever issued by the United States Supreme Court, it's over 10 pounds, telling us what this means. How stupid is that, right? And so what we got to deal with is that, the big one. And so the way you fix that and you go from that back to something that looks more like this is you call a convention of states and you propose amendments. You do things like you relimit the commerce clause, you relimit the necessary and proper clause, you relimit the general welfare clause back to what they're originally intended to mean. If we don't do that, then we live under that constitution and we have only ourselves to blame for that. All right, Bill uh, Biff Tan wants to know, is there any chance of Ohio passing COS this year? And the answer is absolutely. And this is a really an important one to me to address. We did an Ohio committee hearing. It was an awesome committee hearing. We packed the room with COS people. We heard a bunch of hilarious stuff from our opponents. I was called a vampire. It was said that we were operating a Ponzi scheme. It was re repeatedly referred to that Article 5 was Mark Meckler's uh, Article 5 scheme, as if I invented Article 5 somehow. I did admit that I was there at the original Constitutional Convention in 1787, uh, whispering into George Mason's ear and giving him the idea for this. And the whole thing was absurd uh, in our opponents. And our opponents have been putting out information out there, which is really funny, 
uh, you know, the, the 11 or 12 people in the entire John Birch Society nationally have been putting out information saying that we were defeated in the Ohio Senate hearing. Nothing could be further from the truth. We had a member who was out when that hearing was held, so they didn't vote. And so we expect to see a vote by that committee sometime in the fall. And we expect to be victorious. So they think they're saying it's over, that we were defeated. They think they were somehow victorious. I would say to give them their due, they were victorious in the sense that they accomplished our goal of making them look like complete idiots. We didn't have to do anything. They talked about conspiracy theories and crazy stuff. So we were victorious in the sense that they looked poor. Our grassroots looked incredible. We're going to get a vote, I think, come the fall. And I think we have a good chance of passing in Ohio. All right. Now we have one last question I want to address. I think this is super important. And I don't want to name the person who asked me the question. Uh, she's from Georgia. She and I have contrary opinions on this. And, and I respect her opinion. And so I just don't want to put her on the spot. Uh, I'll just say her name's Laura. How's that? So Laura, this is for you. You wrote in a question. I think it's really important. Laura says, Mark, I'm fairly new to COS and been considering becoming a district captain. After your comments on the last battle cry, I was concerned. I'm all in favor of the three main areas of consideration for the convention, term limits, fiscal responsibility, and reigning in federal overreach. I'm also in favor of the court's recent ruling on returning the legality of abortion to the states, which I think falls under the three umbrellas laid out by COS. But you took it to another level, which I did not sign up for, which is outlawing abortion completely. If that's a long-term plan for COS, I need to go ahead and get out now. And I do think I would have a hard time recruiting people who would go that far. I have no problem with your personal opinion, Mark, but I don't think expressing your personal opinion on this as part of the COS website is a good move to make as founder. I think it's divisive and I fear we'll be losing people and it'll make it much harder to interest people in COS. Such an extreme opinion is not what I thought our mission was all about. I really admire and appreciate all you've done, Mark, and I'm willing to work hard on the three tenets of COS. So first of all, Laura, you're awesome. I really appreciate you expressing this and, and bringing this up. And so one, I want to provide clarity. Like what you hear from me on the battle cry often are my opinions. And so I do want to be clear. Is it my opinion that abortion in America should be illegal? Yeah, I think it's a heinous crime against humanity. And I absolutely should. I think it should be illegal. Is that what Convention of States is about? I think I made it very clear that that's my personal opinion. That's not Convention of States opinion. It's not what Convention of States is about. Convention of States is about those three areas. I think returning this to the states has been a great thing. I'm totally in support of it. That's federalism at its finest. But if I could wave a magic wand, which I can't, and this won't happen right now, would I personally outlaw abortion? The answer is yes, I would. And the reason I think it's important that I express my personal opinion to you is because I just want you to know who I am, genuinely. Okay. You know, anybody who sits in a position like I do, we've got an organization with 5.2 million supporters right now, puts your face out there, puts your name out there. They have a public persona, right? And so I have a public persona. But what's important to me is that my public persona to you is no different than my private persona. I call that brand integrity. Every brand has a brand promise. And the question is, how much is the brand that you promote out there like the actual product? And in a human, it's how much do you profess that is what you actually are? And so the reality is, I want you, Laura, and everybody else to know who I am. It seems kind of funny, but that's why you see my real office. That's why you meet my dogs. That's why I talk about my family. That's why I'm, I, I'm open about my faith. I love everybody. I'm willing to tolerate differences of opinion. 
if somebody doesn't think abortion should be illegal, I'm willing to have that discussion with people. It's not my intent to vilify anybody else like that, but I'm not going to hide my private opinion on really fundamental issues from you. If somebody wants to know if I believe in God, the answer is yes. If somebody wants to know if I'm a Christian, my answer is yes, I am unequivocally, unabashedly. Now, there are people who are going to be offended because they don't believe in that, or they think things that I think aren't true about Christianity, or that makes me a bigot or a homophobe or whatever, right? And But the truth is, I'm just going to tell you what I believe. I don't expect that you believe everything that I believe. I don't expect that COS is represents everything I believe. There's nothing that COS represents that I don't believe, or I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be doing this. But COS doesn't carry all of my beliefs, all of my political beliefs. So that's why I do it. The real reason is because I'm being genuine with you when I come and do the battle cry on Sunday night. This is me talking to you, of course, as a group, but really one-on-one. I want to let you into my heart. I want you to know what's in my head, what's in my heart, what I actually believe. And Laura, I appreciate that you expressed it to me because I want to know what you actually believe. And so that's why I did it. That's why I'll continue to do it. Nope, that's not a COS official position. We're pushing for the three things that you described, but that's what's in my heart. So I always tell you guys what's in my heart. I appreciate you. God bless you guys for being here on Sunday night on a battle cry. Don't forget to get your gear. We got all that cool new new gear. Conventionofstates.com forward slash store. We'll see you next week on the battle cry. Oh, by the way, have an incredible 4th of July. Remember, study why we celebrate it. It is important. Happy 4th of July, everybody. I love you guys. See you next week. This has been the podcast version of The Battle Cry with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod and become part of the solution that's as big as the problem. Thank you for listening.